All right, if you've got your Bibles tonight, go ahead and grab your Bibles and stand underneath them. Wave them around for a few minutes, not a few minutes, a few seconds. All right, you guys can have a seat. Uh, Open up tonight to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as you're turning there, um, I want to sort of give you an idea of what we're getting into looking at 1 Corinthians 15. So 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is, is focusing on this concept of the resurrection of believers. You know, we talked about that a little bit this morning. We, we talked about the rapture of the church and how that Paul had written the fourth chapter of Thessalonians so that these Thessalonians could be encouraged that death was not the end for them. In fact, that, that after death, that Christ would, would come and bring them out from the graves, right? So there was hope beyond just life here. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is sort of in a way talking about the same thing to this church at Corinth. And, and he's talking about the reality that at, at some point that the, the resurrection of believers that have passed would take place physically. And in fact, he says in verse 12 of chapter 15, if you want to look at verse 12, he says, Now if Christ be preached that he who now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that Christ, or if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, or futile, or worthless, and ye are yet in your sins. Um, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are, are perished. And Paul says in, in uh, verse 19, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But verse 20 is a game changer. And he says, But now is Christ risen from the dead. And he's become the first fruits of them that slept. And so again, he's talking about the idea that, that at some point the resurrection of believers would take place. So those that had placed their faith in Christ, that had passed away, that they would at some point be physically raised from the dead. And Paul says, if this is not the case, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then we are all proved liars because we're preaching that Christ is risen. Your faith is futile. You're still living in your sins. And those who have passed away before have done nothing but perished. And we are of all men most pitied. And so Paul is hinging a lot of what, what we believe and a lot of what he's talking about in chapter 15 on the fact that these believers would be raised at some point to physically be with Christ. So there's a, a lot weighing on that to be true. And so in chapter 15, leading up to verses 12 through 20 that we just read, Paul, in a way, is, is, is talking about the proof of the resurrection of Christ. He's talking about the proof of the resurrection of Christ to prove the fact that, that believers that had passed would one, one day soon be, be raised from the dead. But, but in doing so, in trying to, to prove and trying to, to show the reality of the resurrection of Christ, he, he in a way just exemplifies the gospel in a way that I don't think that we've seen in Scripture besides in this passage. He lays it out in a clear way that's just so beautiful. And so what I want us to focus on tonight is not, not on the proof of the resurrection, but I want us to focus on the gospel 
that he talks about in verses 1 through 11. I want us to look at the reality of this, of this gospel. And so for Paul, this gospel that he's talking about in chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, was of primary importance to him. Like, if you look at the way that he wrote all of the epistles that he wrote, if you look at the way that he addressed all of his letters, everything was based on, everything was centered around the gospel being primary. The fact that Christ died for sin, that Christ was, that Christ was buried, that Christ rose again, that that offers us hope. Everything was built on, on the gospel. And I think for us, we have this tendency to think that the gospel is something that's only for, that's only for evangelism. We look at the gospel as saying that it's only something that's to be shared. It's only something that we are to communicate with other people. It's only a tool for bringing people to Jesus. And while it's essential to show people how to come into a relationship with Christ through the gospel, through what Christ has done, that's not, that's not just it. I've heard someone say that the gospel is, is not just the diving board, but it's the pool. Once you, once you place your faith in Christ, the gospel is something that you cling to Every single day. But I think that we forget that. And so in this passage, Paul is going to be talking about how, how that we grow deeper in the gospel. And a way that you can sort of phrase this is this, is that, that we never grow beyond the gospel, only deeper into the gospel. And one of the first things that he tells us about growing deeper into the gospel is listed in verses 1, 1 and 2. And this is what he says. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. Now pause there for a second and think about what he's saying. He's saying, I'm, I'm going to declare unto you, I'm going to preach unto you, I'm, I'm preaching to you something that I've already preached to you. He's talking to believers. He's talking to people that have already placed their faith in Christ. And so from the get-go, he's showing that, that the gospel is for believers too. You don't get past it once you are justified and seen as righteous in the sight of Christ, or in the sight of God. And so he says that, I'm preaching to you something that I've already preached to. It's something that you know. It's something that you're familiar, familiar with. And I, I think there's a reason that he's doing this, is that we have this tendency to live in, like, gospel forgetfulness. We live in gospel forgetfulness. Gospel forgetfulness sort of leads us into places of being afraid. Gospel forgetfulness leads us into feeling hopeless. Gospel forgetfulness leads us into feeling anxious, into doubting that, that God is at work. Gospel forgetfulness is something that we battle every single day. And so Paul here is saying in, in verse 1 of chapter 15, I'm going to preach to you something that I've already preached to you. And so I think that one of the best things that we can do for ourselves as believers is that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves often. That in and of ourselves, we have no acceptance at all. That all comes through Christ and what he did for us on the cross. That in and of ourselves, we have nothing to boast in but only what Christ has done for us. That in and of ourselves, we can do nothing, only what Christ has done for us. So constantly preaching the gospel to ourselves. So Paul says, I'm going to declare to you what I've already what I've already preached to you, I'm going to say it again. But then look at what they did with it in verse 1, at the end of verse 1. So he, he preached the gospel. He's declaring it a second time, probably not just a second time, but multiple times. I know for my life personally, there are times that I have to preach the gospel to myself at least a hundred times a day. And hopefully you can say the same thing too. 
But this is what they did with the gospel at the end of verse 1. He says, I preached unto you, which also you have received. So this gospel that he preached to them, that had been received by the Corinthians. And receiving it was the idea that they, they not only heard it with their, their ears, but they heard it with their hearts. They understood it. They believed it to be true. They were, they were believers. That's why he calls them brethren in verse 1. They had received it. They placed their faith in Christ, and they were saved from their sin. They had received the gospel. For them, it was the past tense. They had received it. That moment of justification for them, where they initially placed their faith in Christ, and they were seen as righteous in the sight of God, wrapped up in Christ's righteousness. That moment of justification, no longer guilty for their sin. They received and embraced the gospel. They were believers. But then he says also that wherein you stand. So you received it in the past, and you are standing in it today. So they received it, and they were standing in it. What does it look like to stand in the gospel? To stand in the gospel. Meaning that it was their, it was their footing for defense. You look at Ephesians chapter 6, and you see that Paul is talking about how that we're supposed to put on the armor of the Lord, and we're supposed to put on our feet the shoes of the gospel, our footing that hold us up against the schemes of the enemy, right? So it's our footing against our defense, but it's also our position before the Father. We stand in the gospel because knowing that there's no way that we can come to God by ourselves, knowing that the gospel makes that available for us. It's the, the way that we can have a relationship with God. We looked at Hebrews chapter 6 briefly this morning, looking at the fact that our hope is the anchor for our soul that's tied to Christ who went into the Holy of Holies for us, right? And that's the idea that our, that our standing is what Christ has done. It's on the basis of what Christ has done for us, and not on the basis of what I've done or what you've done. So the gospel is what we stand in every single day. It's what I'm standing in today. It's what I will be standing in tomorrow. It's what I'll be standing in in three months down the road. The gospel is what we stand in. But it's also that anchor for us. It holds us fast. It's our hope like we looked at this morning. So we received it, or they received it. They were standing in it. But then he says at the end, or the beginning of verse 2, by which also ye are saved. So they received it in the past. They were standing in it today, and they were being saved by it. They would be saved by this gospel. Obviously, he's talking about eternal salvation, placing their faith in Christ, that being the way that they are eternally secure and saved by Christ. But also this, this idea of being made into the image of Christ every single day, this day-by-day -day salvation, becoming more like Jesus Christ, the concept of sanctification that Pastor Mike has been talking a lot about recently. So they were saved by it. But then you go into to verse 2 a little bit further, and you see a word that it's a small word, but it holds a lot of power. It's a conditional word. It says, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Another way that you can say that is, by which also ye are saved, if you hold fast what I preached unto you, unless ye believed in vain. So they were saved by this gospel, if they held fast to the gospel. And it's easy to think that Paul is saying that, that they're working for their salvation by holding on to it. But what Paul is getting at is that the genuine evidence of faith in Christ is made evident by the fact that you are holding on to the gospel. 
When you've genuinely placed your faith in Christ, you, you hold on to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cherish it, sort of like we talked about this morning. When you understand the depth of your sin, when you understand the, the greatness of the love of God that he would send his only son to die on the cross for your sin, and simple faith brings you into union with the God of the universe, when you begin to understand that, then you hold fast to, to the gospel. So he says that you are saved by this if you hold fast the word of God the gospel. It's the same idea that you see Jesus mentioned in John 8, 31 that says that if you abide in me, then you will keep my commandments. And John says the same thing in uh, 1 John 2, 24, talking about abidance. And so what Paul is talking about in this, these first two verses is the idea that, is that you never get beyond the gospel. You're, you receive it, you're justified by it, you stand in it every single day, but you're also saved by it every single day. And you're saved by it eternally. So Paul's saying that it's not just for justification, but it's for every single day. You never get beyond the gospel, only deeper into the gospel. So what does this look like practically when you're talking about the idea of growing deeper into the gospel? I want to give you just four quick sub-points of application when you're looking at going deeper into the gospel. And this is outside of 1 Corinthians. There are going to be some references to Romans. I want us to look at some, a few different passages. But the first thing that, that we can see about going deeper into the gospel is that we let the gospel define yourself. We let the gospel define you. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. So when you're going deeper in the gospel, you let the gospel define who you are. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, meaning that if any man places their faith in Christ, believes the gospel brought into the family of God in Christ, in union with Christ... He is a new creature, He's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Amen. So it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your background says. It doesn't matter the things that you've done in your past. If you've placed your faith in Christ and if you stand in the gospel, knowing that you are in Christ, then your past is done away. God gives you a new start. You are new. So that, does it, that means that you don't have to be defined by the sin that you once committed. You don't have to be defined by, by being the person that sought after the approval of others. You don't have to be defined as the person that, that lived just full of lust and greed. You are a new creature in Christ. You are brand new. The gospel defines who you are. Roll over to eight, Romans eight fifteen. Romans 8, 15, even further the gospel defining who you are. This is what Paul says in the great eight of Romans chapter eight. He says, for you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, to fall back into fear or slavery, but instead on the opposite, on the contrary, you have received the spirit, capital S, the spirit of God, the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. 
which means that you are brought into the family of God. You are adopted into the family of God. doesn't matter what your background or your family history looks like. You are a child of God if you are in Christ. The youth sing a song, um, Sons and Daughters of God. And it's so true. Simply by putting your faith in Christ, you are a son and a daughter, a son or a daughter of God. And there's nothing better that you could be. So you let the gospel define you. So when the gospel defines you, it doesn't matter like what other people say about you. You know, we deal a lot with, with, with our youth and a lot with people just wanting to be approved by, by others, wanting to be accepted into specific crowds, wanting to be invited and involved with people, that just to, just to be popular. But understand that if, if you are in Christ, then the gospel says everything that you need to know about who you are. There's never a moment in your life that you have to seek approval from anyone else because you've been given it by the God of the universe. And if that's the case, then what else matters? It also means, too, that if you are a son and a daughter of God, then it doesn't matter like what you currently have going on in your life. You're still a son or a daughter of God. You don't have to let your health issues define who you are. You don't have to let your family circumstances define who you are. You're a son and a daughter of God. You let the gospel define you. The second way that we can go deeper into the gospel, besides letting the gospel define us, is, is letting the gospel defend you. Letting the gospel defend you. I want you to go back to Romans. You're in Romans 8, so stay in Romans 8. We could read the whole chapter, but that would take too long. All that's applicable to, to this point. But look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Who can bring a a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Go Romans 8, 31 uh, through 39. Let me read this to you. What shall we we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Can't say anything more beautiful than that. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't think that Paul left anything out when he was writing that passage just to show that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. So if you are in the gospel, if you are in Christ, then the gospel is your defense. 
Even for the martyrs that staked their lives on the gospel of Christ, that lost their lives for the gospel, the gospel was still their defense. That's why Stephen, in Acts chapter uh, 5 and 6, like, calls out to the Lord, glad to suffer for Christ, because God was the one that was defending him. So if you are in Christ, then the gospel defends you, so therefore you have no worry. So the gospel will define you. The gospel will defend you. The third thing that I want us to see is that the gospel will direct you. The gospel will give you direction. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Letting the gospel direct you. Verses 16 through 21. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now, henceforth, uh, know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We just read that. Verse 18, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Christ, meaning that we are brought into a relationship with God by Christ, and he hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. So we've been reconciled that we might be ministers of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, now, the, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. Your job, your role, your responsibility as a child of God, being in Christ, is that you are an ambassador for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. So you are an ambassador for Christ, which means that you are living in a place that is not your your home. You are living as aliens and exiles, as we look at in 1 Peter. But your role and your responsibility while being in this land that is foreign to us, that is not our our home, is that we might be representatives of the king that we, uh, the kingdom that we're a part of. That we are representing Christ while we are here on this earth. And the message that we are to share is this message of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ. So the direction that we have is that we are to be messengers of of the gospel, that we are to be used of God to share the gospel with people who need to hear the gospel. You fall back to Matthew chapter 28, you don't have to go there, it's the Great Commission, where we're Disciples are told to to go and to make disciples of all nations. That's a command. That's a charge that's given to the disciples. That's a charge and a command that's given to us as followers of Christ. It's our role. It's our responsibility. We have been been given direction by the gospel. So what this does for us is that it provides us with direction, but it provides us with purpose. One of the, the strongest strategies that oftentimes Satan uses to hinder believers is that he puts in them the thought that they are purposeless, the thought that they have no purpose and no value while being on this earth. And that couldn't be further from the truth. There's no greater thought that you can think on that leads you to, into a spiral of depression and discouragement than the fact that, that you have no purpose in this life. And Satan uses that like a sword and throws it at you. But understand that if you are a child of God, you have been given significant purpose as a minister of reconciliation, a messenger of hope to carry the gospel with you wherever you go. So the gospel directs you. So when that lie comes, 
knock it down with the truth of the, what you see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So we let the gospel define us, we let the gospel defend us, we let the gospel direct us, and then the last thing I want to say about this before moving on is that we let the gospel dominate us. I want us to go to Romans chapter 6 to see this. Romans chapter 6, we'll look at verses 5 through 15. We'll read this together. He says this, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man, old man is crucified with him, put to death, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should know, or that we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, in the same way, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey its lust thereof. Verse 13, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then shall we sin, because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. So we let the gospel dominate us. And what that, what that means is that because we are in Christ, because we've been made new, we've been made new creatures, we've been given the gospel of Christ, we've been saved and brought into a relationship with God, we let the gospel lead us as we slay our, our sin. That we don't let sin reign in our mortal bodies. That we are called to yield ourselves as instruments of righteousness and not as instruments of, of, as, of unrighteousness. That we let the gospel lead us and dominate the sin that's within us. So we let the gospel define us, we let the gospel defend us, we let the gospel direct us, and we let the gospel dominate us. And so Paul is talking about cherishing the gospel in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Cherishing the gospel, never letting go, never getting beyond it, only getting deeper in it, holding fast to it, clinging to it, going deeper into the gospel. The second thing that he tells us about the gospel, being able to go deeper in our relationship with the gospel in Christ, he says in verses 3 through 7, and he says, hold on to gospel clarity. Look at what he says in verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. So I'm, I'm delivering unto you, I've already delivered unto you that what I received first, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas and then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. And then verse 7 says, After that, He was seen of James and then of all the apostles. 
So in verses 3 through 7, you've got one of the clearest explanations of what the gospel is that you can find in Scripture. You can see it in various spots, but for Paul to be able to lay it out so clearly for us, we've got to be able to take a look at it. So he says, hold on to gospel clarity. And there's a reason for that that we're going to get to in just a second. But, but look at what he says the gospel is, looking at verse 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. So, side note there, Paul had received the gospel. He had genuinely received the gospel, and therefore he was, he was delivering the gospel. Which means that when you understand the gospel fully, and you embrace the gospel, and you've been changed by the gospel, then you will deliver the gospel. You'll share the message of hope. But then look at what he says in verse 3, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. So he breaks down the gospel in three, with three different points showing us what the gospel is. The first thing is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And what he's showing, he's showing evidence and proof of the fact of the resurrection, using the gospel to do that. And he's pointing out Old Testament passages that refer to the coming of Christ, that he would come and that he would die, that he would rise again for the forgiveness of sin. Psalm 22, if you want to look at Psalm 22 a little bit later on, Isaiah 52 and 53, and then Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 31, all make mention of the fact that Christ would come and that he would die, all, all looking forward to what Christ would do, according to the Scriptures, using the Scriptures to back it. When you're looking at the reality that Christ died for sin, you've got you've to know some pertinent things about what this phrase sort of carries with it. The way that he says that Christ died for, for our sins. The fact that Christ died for our sins brings things personal. It's not just that Christ died for the sin of the world, but, but it's the fact that Christ died for our sin. So sin is something that's incredibly personal. It's something that you can't blame shift onto someone else. It's within you. Because you are a descendant of Adam and Eve, you've got sin running in your veins like I've got some sort of Indian blood running through my veins, I think, right? You've got it running in your veins, and there's nothing that you can do that can stop it. And so you don't, you're not a sinner because you do bad things. You've, you've got sin running in you, and therefore you're a sinner. So it's personal. But also know that this sin deserved the punishment of death, that Christ died for our sins. So that this sin was, was worthy of death. You look at Romans chapter 6, verse 23, you see that the, the penalty or the wages of sin is death. And so sin required a just, just punishment. And it was death, separation from God, from God. But you also see in this phrase that Christ died in our place. The penal substitution bearing our punishment, bearing our death. That Christ died for sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 that we look at so often shows us that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Not just that he, that he wore sin on his back, but he became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. So Christ died in our place, not just for us, but he died instead of you. Your sin deserved your death and separation from God. And Christ was willing to bear that wrath in your place. What this also shows us is that we would be hopeless apart from Christ's atoning work for us. There was no way that you could pay the penalty yourself. There's no way that you could bear the burden or the load yourself. It took someone that was not you. It took someone that was perfect. It took Christ. And so apart from Christ, we would be hopeless. 
We looked at it this morning. So we see that Christ died for our sins. The second part of the gospel that you see mentioned here in verse 4, and that he was buried. That he was buried. He was physically placed into a tomb. He was dead for three days, literal death for three days. If this was not true, then the gospel could not have happened. He had to die. And the last part that you see of this gospel is uh, at the end of verse 4, and that he, aro- that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That he rose again. So Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ arose. And apart from Christ rising from the dead, if you look a little bit further, like we just looked at a few minutes ago, you find that we have, we have no hope. Our hope is worthless. We are wasting our time if Christ has not risen from the dead. C.S. Lewis said that, that if Christ was not true, then he was a lunatic, essentially. And that's the case. But the word of God is true, and the gospel is true, because Christ did rise from the dead. So he says that Christ died, that he was buried, and that he rose again. So, so why in the world is Paul clarifying the gospel like this? If he's already preached it to him before, if he's already brought the message of the gospel to them, why, why is he doing it yet again? I think we need the reminders of that, but I think also, too, that, that we, need to, we need to at times just fall back onto the basics of what the gospel really is. We live in a world that muddies down the gospel, in a world that doesn't preach the gospel, in a world that adds to the gospel, in a world that takes away from the gospel. But I want you to look at Galatians chapter 6. And I want you to see what Paul says about this in Galatians chapter 6. Excuse me, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Why, why would Paul emphasize so clearly that the gospel is based on the the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, and that alone. By faith in that, you're brought into a relationship with God. That is the gospel. This is what he says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I marvel. And Paul is writing to Galatians here that, that were being just infiltrated with false teaching. They were believing false teaching. They were believing and giving back into to legalism that was hindering their walk with Christ. He says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. So that you've left the gospel and you're embracing another gospel. This gospel of legalism that he's talking about. But look at what he says in verse 7. Which is not another. So this gospel that he says that is not the gospel is not another gospel. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. That want to thwart the gospel of Christ and make it something that it's not. But this is what he says in verse 8. But though we, though Paul, myself, right? Though Paul or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be be accursed. So Paul says, if I stand up here and I proclaim a gospel that is not salvation by faith in the work of Christ, if I, Paul, stand up and proclaim something to you different than that, or even an angel from heaven comes down and preaches another gospel that is, that is different than salvation by faith in Christ and in Christ alone, then that person is to be accursed. Anathema, which means that they are to be cut off and sent to hell is what he's talking about. And that's harsh. 
But Paul is talking about the reality and, and how important it is that the gospel remain pure. And today it's no different that you see so many people just taking the gospel, twisting it. Not, not changing it altogether, but twisting it. It's one of, the greatest, uh, one of the greatest tools that Satan uses to trick people in so many different ways. Taking the gospel, slightly twisting it. And Paul says that when that happens, it's no longer the gospel. It becomes something that's not true. It's not the gospel. And a person that's preaching that is to be cursed and sent to hell. That's harsh. But it's truth, and that's what Paul is saying. And why is it so important? Why is it so essential? Because it's, it's foundational for life. You know, we looked at the passage this morning. We, we talked about the hope that we have in 1 Thessalonians and the fact that our hope rests on this gospel. And so if the gospel is wrong in any way, shape, or form, then our, our foundation is off and our building is going to crumble. And so it's essential that we hold on to gospel clarity. And one of the greatest hindrances that we have to seeing gospel clarity today is the fact that we oftentimes think that, that we are brought into a right relationship with God based off of the things that we do. And based off of what Paul says here, that is not the gospel. Salvation by faith and what Christ has done for you and that alone. And so it's essential that we hold on to gospel clarity. So we cherish the gospel to go deeper into it. We hold on to gospel clarity to go deeper into the gospel. And the last thing that I want us to see is in verses 8 through 11. And this is the effects of the gospel. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 11. He's talking about the resurrected Christ appearing to, appearing to Peter and then to the disciples and then appearing to the 500 brethren at once. All this happening in a span of about 40 days. After that, he was seen of James and then of all the apostles. And then he begins to give like a little bit of a personal testimony. And he says, and last of all, meaning that he was the last person to to see the resurrected Christ, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. What Paul is talking about here is, is the fact that he was, that Christ had already ascended when Paul came into place, right? So when he's saying that he was born out of due time, it's the fact that, that Christ made a special visit to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9 when he met him on the Damascus Road and he, he saw him face to face. And at that moment, he became an apostle, seeing the resurrected Christ. So he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. And then look at what he says. Look at the effects of the gospel. Verse 9, it shows us that the gospel humbles us. For I am the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy, I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So one that had has embraced the gospel of Christ, that has cherished the gospel, that understands gospel clarity, going deeper into the gospel, you understand who you really are. There is no way that you can have pride and faith in the gospel growing at the same time. It's got to be one or the other. And so as you're growing deeper into the gospel, pride is being brought low. Because you see who you really are. Paul, Paul the apostle Paul, that wrote over half of the New Testament that Christ appeared to, that, that was used in a vital way to bring Christianity to, to us today, right? The Apostle Paul says that I'm not worthy, I'm not me to be called an apostle. And why? Because I persecuted the church of God. 
He understood that he wasn't worthy because of the sin that he had committed. The gospel shines a light on the darkness of your heart. But know also, too, that it's only the gospel that can, that can take a murderer and make him a martyr. The gospel does that. But look at also, too, you see in verse, in verse 10, the gospel makes us new. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was, bespo- which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was, which was with me. So the gospel makes us new. I am what I am. Even though I'm not perfect, I know that, that I am made new in, in Christ. The gospel makes us new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 again, new creatures in Christ. The last effect that I want you to see that the gospel has on us is in verse 10 as well. And that the gospel works despite us. The gospel works despite us. He says this, But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I. It wasn't I that was laboring, but it was the grace of God which was with me. So when you understand the gospel, and you understand you surrender your life to the gospel of Christ, you see the effects that it has on you, you begin to see that that God works in the gospel despite who you really are. Paul says in various passages in Romans chapter 7 that he... He couldn't, he couldn't do the things that he wanted to do, and the things that he wanted to do, he couldn't do. He's got this struggle with the flesh, and yet God used him in mighty ways. Why? Because the gospel works despite us. Though, though you believe, and though you place your faith in Christ, and though you are made new in Christ, you still struggle up against the flesh. But a life that's submitted to the gospel is a life that God uses despite you. And there's, that's an awesome sense of hope. To know that, like, I don't have to be perfect to know that God can still use me. And the same is true for you. So we never get to a place where we outgrow the gospel. We only grow deeper into the gospel. We grow deeper into the gospel by letting it define us, by letting it defend us, by letting it direct us, by letting it dominate us. We cherish the gospel. We also hold on to gospel clarity. It's easy to begin to believe things that are not true, but we hold on to gospel clarity because it's foundational for our lives. And then we see the effects of the gospel, the way that the gospel changes us. So, believer, this this evening, you have not, you have not outgrown the gospel. There's never a a time that you can say that I've, I've reached a certain level that the gospel is no longer relevant to me. And though no one really ever say that outwardly, the attitude that you display towards that could could be different. But there's never a point in your life where you outgrow the gospel. In fact, when you think that you've outgrown the gospel, that's when you need it the most. So cherish the gospel. Hold on to it. Cling to it every single day. Preach the gospel to yourself. Don't let there be a day go by that you don't preach the gospel to yourself that you see that you've got acceptance, that you see, see that you've got approval, that you, that you see that you are a son or a daughter of God, to know that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God, knowing that you've been given purpose, you've been given value, knowing that he leads you as you put sin to death. Never let there be a day that goes by that you don't preach the gospel to yourself and that you don't cherish the gospel. But also to hold fast to its truth. Don't let anything that comes up today or that comes up tomorrow or that comes up 10 years down the road 
some variation of the gospel come around and, and change your thinking. Hold on to the truth of the gospel. And watch and embrace the effects of what God does in your life because of your submission to the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us this evening to to look at the Word of God. Uh, Lord, we know that the Word is, is good, it is rich, it is full of so much instruction for our lives, God. But God, it's not just full of instructions, but God, it's, it tells us about you. And Father, that is the greatest treasure that we can have, and I'm thankful for that. But Lord, as we look at the Gospel tonight, we are... Father, we are mindful that we never get beyond it. There are days that we feel like we are, if we have to be honest, but there's never a day that we get beyond the gospel. There's never a day that we don't need it. There's never a day that it's not our hope. There's never a day that we should not cherish the gospel. So Lord, help us to cherish it. Help it to define who we really are. Help, it to see, help us to see that it provides us direction. It provides us a defense. It leads us as we put sin to death. God, help us to see that the gospel does that. And Father, let us hold on to the truth of the gospel, Father. Let us never compromise to believe something that's easier to hear. But let us always hold fast to your truth. So, Father, we love you this, this evening and we're thankful for the word. And we pray that you would continue to and help us to see how real the gospel is, Father. Let our lives be changed by it. We ask that you would move in this invitation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Guys, why don't you stand and turn to page 435 as we sing.